Hey everyone, welcome to the JIBC Pointing Lives to Christ podcast. I'm Aaron. I am Pastor Andy. I'm Dan. I'm Paul. I'm Paul. And I can hardly hear Paul right now. You got it. I'm Paul. I'm Paul. I'm Paul. There you go. Uh, no, like I said, we are so happy um, that you joined us for this episode. And this is the first, um, I don't know if we should call this like the commentary part of our podcast. If you've listened to this podcast before, um, this has been 100% um, our pul- pulpit ministry where we um, broadcast, we publish whatever whatever word you want to use, our sermons every Sunday. So um, we thought we would use this format and this outlet to talk to not only our local church family, but those who already listen to the podcast, and hopefully you will share this with others. Um, but this episode is specifically um, geared towards um, those who attend I guess you could say, the local listeners here in Central Ohio. Um, we invite you, if you're not here in Central Ohio and you listen to this, to, to definitely um, uh, stay with us. But we are focusing on the background or the history of JIBC. And we talked about doing this because um, I, I think it's important for everyone to know where we came from, um, how JIBC got started, um, because then it, it, I think, helps us to understand where we're going in the future. Um, if you are not from the local area, Johnstown is growing, and um, this history could get lost, potentially. And so we just wanted to share this with everyone. So um, the other thing that I'll throw out, too, is uh, Pastor Dan will kind of be leading this conversation because... Um, every once in a while, PD does a um, getting to know JIBC for those who are visiting, a getting to know JIBC class, usually a two-day class, um, two Sundays, just so everyone kind of knows our doctrine, why we do what we do, but also he goes over the history of JIBC. So um, PD, Pastor Dan, did you say you're Daniel? No, Dan. Dan, just Dan. Not Pastor Dan, or just as Dan. Paul likes to call me, DL, DL, DL Scarberry, the infamous DL Scarberry. <laughs> so DL, DL Scarberry, Pastor DL, um, go ahead and take it away. Um, just tell us a little bit about how JIBC got started. Um, we do have some of those founding members that are still with us um, here um, at the church. So um, if you can kind of just start out how how JIBC got started, where we came from. Okay, so. I should preface all of this by saying this is all information that I heard directly from Charlie and Norma Williams, who are what you would call founding members of our church and very integral in the formation of this church. So in the late 60s, um, the landscape of the American church was in upheaval, just like it is today. But mainline, what we call mainline denominations, um, Lutheran denominations, Methodist denominations, Presbyterian, Baptist denominations, were all going through a similar struggle. And the struggle had to do with whether or not they were going to be governed by the authority of God's word. Whether, and really what it boiled down to is, how do we view the scriptures? Do we take them seriously or do we not? Um, this church came out of a church that was a was a mainline denomination church. It was an American Baptist church. Um, the church it split off of is still here in Johnstown. Um, and so 
that denomination, the American Baptists, primarily were doing two things at that time. They were setting the groundwork to do two things at that time that that when their churches got wind of it, they either were like, okay, I think we can go along with this, but many were like, no, that's a bridge too far. And the two things that were happening were um, there, there was talk of ordaining women and there was a shift in the view, even in the late 60s, about homosexuality. There was a more of, of an openness to try to be more understanding of it. So um, the pastor of the church at the time was very much resistant to the change. And he brought in a guest speaker who basically for, I believe, 14 weeks is what I remember, something like that, taught through the doctrinal statement, taught through fundamentals of the faith, and did not give the reason as to why he was doing that. But at the end of that, the pastor got up that last week that the guest speaker came, and he came out every week to do this from Columbus. At the end of that, the pastor got up and said, what you have just heard over these last weeks and months has been our doctrinal statement and where we stand. The denomination that we're a part of does not adhere to this same doctrinal statement. And so I'm making a motion and calling a vote. I think they had to have the normal two-week um, period of time, calling for a vote two weeks from today to leave the denomination. Um, it was very popular during that time, and we'll talk later on, I think, in another episode about the value of church membership and why that's so important. Um, and when you and when you talk about the, leaving the de- denomination, you were talking about the American Baptist leaving the American okay. Baptist Church. Okay. Um, so membership is important, and active membership is important. The day of the vote. Um, this church has what most Baptist churches have. They have a role. They have a role of members. And the role of members cons- consisted of people who had not darkened the door of the church in years. But on the day of that vote, the membership came out of the woodwork. And they voted to stay in the denomination. I should note that one of the main churches in this denomination is down in Granville, Ohio, and today they are led by a lesbian pastor. And so the, the things they were concerned about did come to fruition. So at that point, um, a small group left, and it cost them. Johnstown was a much smaller community. Many of the people who left in that small group were respected and, and, and had some prominence in the community, and it cost them dearly to, to leave the church. That church was, I guess, for lack of better terms, the happening church in town at the time. They left, and they started a Bible study that met in the living room of Charlie and Norma's house on Coshocton Street, not too far down from where Villa Pizza is here in town. That group consistently met, and then in early 70s, 1972, they broke ground at the site where the church is currently located with the help of an organization called Baptist Church Builders and, and local men in town who helped build this church. 
um, which explains the name, which is interesting. Many people ask, why the name Independent Baptist Church? Um, uh, before I even get there, just give somebody else a chance for feedback. I mean, what's your understanding, Paul and Andy, of what Independent Baptist is in terms of, in terms of American church today? Much of what I see in the the term independent is uh, uh, what you would consider the slick back, uh, staunch, you know, men wear jacket and tie, women wear uh, dresses to the floor, a very rigid, fixed, legalistic idea of what Christianity is, very little, very little liberty, very little room for independent thinking, if you will. Um, I see them as being um, a church that brings division and some degree of animosity just by their very presence. Not saying there's not probably not some good ones. I just have never been in one. Yeah, I mean, there's. <clears throat> I remember uh, there, there's. There, I think there's a Twitter handle that just um, it, it almost just makes fun of independent Baptist churches, um, and they'll they'll put different videos on there of of pastors railing against polka music, saying it's evil, or um, different types of music that are written in uh, different time signatures and things. Uh, KJV only uh, that has that kind of um, vibe to it. In fact, when you told somebody in seminary that you were considering <laughs> coming to an independent Baptist church, you were questioned pretty heavily, weren't you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Well, um, I mean, we, we've had people that have come here, right? And, and they've, they've expected mm, one thing, yeah. and then they said, whoa, 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 this is, this is not an independent Baptist church, no, because when, they had this thought in their mind. No, because when the pastor's up front, and he's in a pair of jeans and a sweater, and preaching, he's out, of preaching out of the ESV, <laughs> right. and they're not using a piano and organ, and the list just goes on and on, and women are in pants and jeans, and yeah, that... that I, honestly, and, and I'm sure they're brothers and sisters in Christ, I've seen my fair share of people come who I, whenever they walk through the door, I'm like, they're looking for an independent Baptist church. Most of those people don't even last through an entire service. Yeah. And we're not that wild of a church. Right. But the name independent was chosen in the early 70s to communicate to the community that this was a church that was not affiliated with any denomination. And it meant something to those people, still does to those people who chose that name. It, it meant we are standing on our own. We're, we're a standalone. We don't take orders from any denomination, and we don't espouse the views of those denominations. And so um, that kind of got interpreted in the Johnstown community as um, – a stiff arm, like we don't really want you down here at this end of town where our church is. Um, Paul can speak to that. Paul, when he came to Christ, um, he visited this church because his mother was a member of this church. And if I remember the story right, Paul, you vowed you'd never darken the door again. There was 10 of us showed up that first morning, my wife and I, our two children, um, who were were small? They weren't. They weren't by no means uh, anywhere near grown. Were your children ever really small? Well, you know, it all depends on your <laughs> scale. Um, and then another couple that had those two, and they had four kids. So there was ten of us. And uh, I had just got saved. I had just become a believer shortly before that, and frankly, still had a chain drive wallet and probably a pack of cigarettes stuck in my shirt pocket. And uh, I had a Bible, and Pretty much everybody in town knew me because this is my hometown. 
and everybody knew what kind of character the Grice boys were, and in particular this one. And uh, wasn't necessarily received with the most warmth. Uh, as a matter of fact, was kind of felt uh, I kind of felt like a leper. Uh, nobody really wanted a lot to do with me. And I, as I walked out, I told my wife, I said, uh, "I'll never darken the door of that place again." I said, "I will never return." God's got a funny sense of humor. I was just saying. Yeah, he does. So, this church has had four pastors that have been lead pastors. Interestingly enough, this is just a fun factoid. I don't know if it matters much, but when the church officially became a church after the building was built and and they had incorporated and so forth, um, they contacted Cedarville College at the time. It wasn't the university then. And um, James T. Jeremiah was the, was the president and chancellor. And they asked for a couple of men that would be possible graduates that would consider candidating to become the pastor of this church. Um, there, was a, there was a man who, who was already here who was kind of filling the pulpit, but he had not intended to stay. He was just kind of helping the church get started. Um, and the two men that they sent, um, one of them was David Jeremiah. Um, really? Yes. Yes, he candidated at this church. But his daddy felt like this was a little bit too small of a place for him to get started, and he actually found him a pretty good-sized church to get started in. And so uh, they ended up hiring a guy named Drew Baker, who was a basketball star at Cedarville. And he stayed here for quite a bit, responsible for really getting things really going pretty well. Then they hired another Drew, Drew Walther, and then um, I am the fourth pastor in succession. Um some of the other history of this is um, just from a plant and facility standpoint, the original building was built in 72. The Fellowship Hall edition, I can't remember if it's either 89 or 91. For some reason, I want to say it was 91 that the Fellowship Hall was built, kitchen area. And then in 2002, 2003, um, where the current auditorium is and all the classrooms that sit underneath it, that was built onto the church. Um, and so, um, it literally, we have filled up a piece of property um, that, that God so graciously supplied. Um, you look at pictures from the 70s, and the landscape around this place has completely changed, too, um, just like Johnstown has. So, that's kind of the history. It explains the name, um, and that's kind of what kind of brings us to where we are today. Probably the most, one of the most important and things about the church is, as it has grown, is its its demographic has changed quite a bit. At one time, uh, I'm the oldest guy in the room. For those of you that don't know me, yes, you are. You sound yes, old. They can tell. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm the only guy wearing suspenders. Um, so, at one time in the church auditorium, at the age of, I came here in '98 right out of college, um, and I came for one reason only. They were the only church nearby that had the right doctrinal statement. I've never hidden that. I felt no great love or draw towards the place, but the doctrinal statement was right. And as I would sit in the Sunday morning services, I would look around, and frankly, I wasn't the oldest in the room, and there were a lot of people that were much, much older than me, and we had a problem with the aging of of the congregation. 
And over the years, God has brought many changes to us, and one of them is the lowering age, median age of our congregation. We, um, we prayed, we've only prayed for one particular type of growth that I can remember in my time here, and that was we prayed that God would bring young families of childbearing years to us. Not because we wanted to bolster our numbers, but because we wanted the opportunity to minister to those kind of folks. And uh, God has been faithful and answered that. And we are, we all have 110, 120 kids at Awana. Our VBS programs are full. Our ABFs, our Sunday schools are, uh, are well attended. Um, it is a much different church now demographically, but our doctrinal statement is still the same. We are still the same uh, fundamental conservative Christians that we've always been. But I tell people we're fundamental, but we're not mad about it. Well, and, and that brings up a good point. I, I was actually going to ask, because I, I think a lot of people, either they don't understand um, the, um, I don't know if you, you uh, PD, you were talking about the American Baptist churches mm-hmm. or American mm-hmm. Baptist Association. Of course, we hear a lot about the Southern Baptist Convention and churches, and you're, you're an SBC church, or you're this church or that church. And I don't want to um, throw you a curveball, but we don't have that um, affiliation here at JIBC. Why not? Why, why have we not chosen to align? Is it just because we've just kept up with tradition, or is there a more fundamental reason for that? And that may be a curveball. Yeah, it's not a curveball. I think there's some good reasons. Um, honestly, if you're a pastor and you're concerned about your retirement, you want to join a denomination yeah. because your denomination, your health care, some of that stuff is all tied up in your denomination. And so that's a that's a plus for the pastor. But for the church, the reason that I personally believe that denominations are kind of troublesome is, is one, denominations as a whole do not represent individual churches. They just don't. And two, and that can be good and that can be bad, by the way. Um, Two, though, you're kind of at the mercy of the denomination for things that are really important that a local church, I believe, biblically is responsible for for itself. For instance... Um, when it comes to missionaries and sending out missions and choosing how you spend your money, um, if you're part of denomination, a certain percentage, depending on what denomination you're in, goes to the denomination and you really don't have a say over it. They tell you you have a vote, and but, but you really don't have a say about how your money's spent. Um, when it comes to picking missionaries, your your pool is limited. You're limited to those those missionaries who would be sanctioned or approved by your denomination. Um, many times you have to affirm a statement of faith. I know um, with the Southern Baptist, they have to affirm the Southern Baptist Confession. Now, I don't know of anything personally that's in that that I get concerned about, but what they have done in recent years right. with the articles and things they've attached to it are, are not things that I would support. So then if you have that label, then then you're constantly having to explain to people, well, we are this, but we don't hold to that. And that's just not a great way to go about doing that. Yeah. And, in, and in some respects, we have to do that anyhow. We have to do that with, with the sign independent out front. People go, well, you're really not, as we've discussed earlier. Oh, we are, but we aren't. 
All right. Anything else? P. Fitz has been so quiet this whole time. <laughs> He's holding back. No, I think that I think that looking at and, and talking about the history of your church, of uh, your local church, is so important, and especially as you know, even as we have newer faces that we see every single Sunday now. Um, there are a lot of a lot of people that don't don't know that history, and uh, don't know really the context. They're just walking into. We just re re, re uh, revented. Help me. Rehabbed, uh, renovated. renovated, renovated. Thank you. Uh, we just words are hard. You know, Fixed walking, it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, a- English uh, is Andy's you, first you, language. <laughs> Easy. Um, but they're walking into a renovated, you know, uh, worship center, and they're hearing a man uh, preach expositorily um, from the pulpit, and they're, you know, they're sitting down in a comfy chair, and and some of that context isn't isn't really um, there. And I think you can take for granted the battles and things that have uh, that have taken place here. Though I'm I'm new myself. Um, I think it is, though, really important to be able to understand that history. And I think it's even good for older members that have been here for a long time to just be able to reflect on what God has has done um, here at this church and the ministry that's taken place here, to see God's faithfulness and grace be be displayed um, throughout the, the years. So um, I, I, I appreciate the topic and... and I, I think there's one piece of history, too, that we should probably talk about before we sign off on this, because it's more recent history, but it's significant history of the church. Um, in 2007, and Paul can speak to this, he was, he was very invested in this at that time. Um, he was not in church leadership at the time, but he was, a, he was what I would call a... He and his wife were backbone members of this church. Um, 2007... This church went from two pastors to one, and I stayed on and became whatever you want to call it, lead pastor, pastor, whatever. And very early on in my ministry, I was very concerned because of some things that had happened leading up to that point in spring of 2007, and also just knowing myself, I was very concerned that I did not want to be a one-man show in leadership. And we had the traditional model of pastor and deacons or pastors and deacons. Um, Paul, pretty much, pretty soon after that time in 2007, came on the deacon board. And he can tell you, maybe, maybe his perspective is a little different than mine. I tried to treat the deacons more like elders than I did deacons. Is that fair to say, Paul? That is a fair assessment, yes. And the, the rationale behind that was was not that I was trying to circumvent a constitution as much as I knew there was danger in me being a one-man show, and people looked to me to make a lot of decisions, and I could see how I could abuse that. And I'm not, not because I'm so uber-wise, I just know my own heart. I, I would have enjoyed that. Um, and it was about 2017, 2018, Paul helped me out with that, that I first mentioned to our leadership, Aaron, you were around during that mm-hmm. time too, yeah. that I mentioned the way we're conducting ourselves is good, but it's not good enough. The biblical way is best. And I had gone through my own transformation in this 
God had used a variety of circumstances all the way from being at a pastor's conference and having some guy kind of basically nail me to the wall and say, you mean you're a pastor deacon model? In other words, you like being led by the sheep and not the shepherd leading the sheep, to to just personal experience in ministry and some of the some of the heartbreaks and hardships of ministry came from the fact that we were not operating with elders. And it was during that time that I began to just little by little in our leadership meetings mention that we need to prayerfully consider moving to a elder rule model. And I made the case amongst our leaders and we began to pray that way. Um, in fact, in 2019 and at the end of 2018, when we were in talks with Pastor Andy to come, it's really hard to believe that we were talking with you and like, I think it was the summer of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, that was already beginning to become a major item of conversation because I, I believe Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, you asked me about church governance and and if we were committed to that, the model that we were operating under. Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, I... I uh... I remember going actually even over to your house with the other deacons, and uh, we had lunch, we had we had uh, dessert, and after the dessert, of course, I remember the dessert. Um, but we, uh, I remember you guys were talking about just um, your desire to to pursue um, an elder led form of governance, church governance, and um, I was just so encouraged because um, not only was our theology, our theology and doctrine, um, you know pretty much together. Um, but you guys were heading in the right right way as far as I could see um, in, in pursuing what I would think is is biblical when it comes to church governance. Paul, maybe you can just give a minute or two on the hamstringing that it was to be a deacon trying to function, being asked to function kind of like an elder. One, one of the Aaron, most... Aaron, you could speak to it too, yeah. probably. One of the most frustrating things that I found was and this is going to sound mean-spirited, was the way we handled money. Um, those of you that know me know that I have publicly said more times than anybody cares to hear that money to me is just a thing. And yet, quite often there were, I don't want to say battles, but there were major disagreements as to how the church saw money. Um, we were instructed on how to spend the money of the church, how... Everything that was done had to be flowed through a particular group to get their approval. One, one of the more endearing moments of all of that, and you might remember this better than most, but uh, the, the committee in charge had decided that pastor would not get a raise that year. And being a congregational-led church, I told one of the nice people in the church that, you know, if you make a motion to change that on the floor and give him a raise and the congregation agrees to it, then you get a raise. And bless her heart, the girl did it, and we voted in a raise, and the committee that was in charge threw a fit. Uh, They often wanted to dictate how things were done. There were constrictions, or there was some constraints placed upon what we would do and when we would do. And it, it was almost as if the leadership wasn't truly the leadership until somebody else signed off on it. And we struggled, I struggled with that and found a great deal of irritation to it. Um, I found it very limiting, very frustrating. Uh, frankly, I come to a couple of meetings with my resignation 
in my pocket just waiting to be signed. And then God, God did some amazing things. Well, and I, I think for me at least, um, not jumping too far ahead, and Petey, you may have you you may have been headed in this direction, but COVID mm-hmm. was, I think, for all of us because um, Andy, you were here at that time, and um, we quickly realized when we were notified of the pandemic about the pandemic and um, all of the bad things that were supposed to happen with the pandemic, um, we had no choice but to operate. We we went outside the scope of deacons completely. The, yeah, completely. we 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 didn't we blur the lines. A, yeah, we didn't blur the lines. We just completely we went the over the lines. Yeah, I mean because we had to. Yeah, I, I mean we couldn't we couldn't bring a congregation in here um, to to vote, um, and we quickly realized. I think that was kind of we knew we were headed to your point, PD, that we were going in that direction. But then we realized, oh my gosh, like this is this is the perfect example of why you need to have yes. elders leading because we've got to make these decisions quickly. And that that was a very, very trying time, but God blessed us through that. And I think also blessed and showed our congregation because there were those who, they weren't sure about this. And there may still be some that aren't sure about this form of el- governance. Yeah, yeah, this form of governance, but it was a demonstration even outside of our control. Yeah, and if you're listening and you weren't here as part of the church then, yeah, we didn't yeah. just spring this on the church. We taught through yeah. it systematically. Yep. We we invited questions. We even had a couple of, for lack of better terms, town hall meetings. Whenever we had we had put out a proposed constitution late in 2020 with the idea of voting. I think it was the first week, first Sunday of December in 2020, we ratified a new constitution. But we had held several meetings where they were just non-agenda meetings where we just were there and ready to answer any questions that anybody had on anything that they saw. And we we kind of gave what I call a red line constitution. We gave the original constitution red line through everything that was changed and put in the new. Um, and honestly, COVID did one other thing when I think back on it. Not only did we have to function that way, but it also brought to bear in my mind as we were watching especially churches in Canada yeah. suffering through this. Um, elders of the church should be the ones who are responsible to law authorities, not the whole church themselves. The leaders need to be responsible. And and that was a big thing that kind of just, it was sobering. Like, you know, it might be a little bit easier and convenient if we just don't do it this way, because are they going to throw the whole church in jail? I don't think so. I mean, right. I, ultimately, they'd probably grab a pastor or two just to make an example of them. But at least this way, there was some legitimacy in taking a group of elders and saying, you guys are responsible for this. And it's true, they are, because we are responsible to God for this. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, and, and the other thing that I'll throw out, I've had, you know, we've all had conversations, um, but, um, and it, it's humbling and convicting when you talk about it this way, but the fact that before, under congregational led, um, there's no, there's who's in charge. If, if the whole congregation is voting and moving and making things happen, it, in fact, it makes it easier uh, me being a deacon then to say, not that we did this, but you can just say, well, I don't know, go talk to the congregation. They voted to accept X, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But now I don't think people realize oftentimes that there are right now four elders who the the buck stops with us. The, and there's the, a greater accountability. A hundred percent. Because we can't at that point 
pass the blame on anyone else. We're well, not we can only, pass it to Pastor Ian. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm we, good we with do. that. Yeah. But I mean, we're accountable to God, of course, as under shepherds, but the congregation knows there's only four elders. And so there's greater accountability than there ever has been. And there's greater chance to, for someone to say, you know, longtime member Susie sitting in the congregation who feels strongly about something, she can come and approach an elder, even come to an elder's meeting and des- yeah. describe and, and detail what she's concerned about. And without having to take it before the whole church, we can make we can perfectly make some decisions and changes or additions as yep. necessary. Whereas if you're cum- encumbered by congregational votes and that, it may be a really good idea, and if the congregation doesn't see it as a good idea, then then you're stuck with whatever right. outcome you have. Well, and and you uh, you also have you know when you look at it from a scriptural perspective, you know we're called to be Bereans. Our congregation should be Bereans, and they should be when an elder or pastor is in the pulpit preaching, they should be searching out the scriptures themselves as as congregants. And if you're a Berean and you see false doctrine, false teaching, mistakes being spoken from the pulpit, you should know exactly who you're going to go to. And, and we welcome that. You, you better Correct. be speaking to one of us about that if you have questions, if you have concerns. And before, again, that was very muddied. It was, it was very blurred. Those lines were blurred. Sorry, Paul, I think you were going to say something. That's, that's all right. And one of the other advantages to the congregation is that if they need something of a personal nature, if something they need to confine or they need to confer with somebody, then they can go and know that this group isn't going to change at the next election, that this group will be there in the flow and ebb of things until one of us steps down or one of us dies or God calls us one of us out to a different place. And that that privacy and that, that, if you will, that sense of sanctuary between uh, what they're sharing and what everybody else knows, that, that wall is built around them in privacy and, and in protection because we desire what's best for them. And, and it's much different when you think, hey, in two years, they're going to reelect deacons. Now a whole bunch of people are going to know yeah. that. So it actually works better for the congregation, I think, in that it gives them some solidity in their leadership. Well, um, I just want to thank you again for tuning into this episode. I hope it's been, um, uh, uh, you know, helpful for you to know where we came from. I think it's helpful, um, you know, just to, even though I knew a lot of this, just to think about even when I think of Charlie and Norma sitting in their living room um, in a small house church and what God has done with JIBC um, and, and everything. It's it's um, humbling, but it's, it's just awesome to see how God has blessed and built his church here at JIBC in Johnstown. So um, I invite you, if you're local, um, even if you're not local, like we started out, um, please share this this episode. If, if people are wondering what JIBC is, why are you going to an independent Baptist church, whatever the case is, please share this episode with them. And um, if you are visiting or you're a congregate here at our church, if you have, if this spurs questions, please come to one of us, ask us, um, you know, um, uh, your thoughts, give us your thoughts, ask us your questions. So um, until next time, everyone, um, I am so, like I said, we're so glad that you joined us and uh, we hope to see you again. Everyone take care. Bye-bye.